0: Luke ten thirty eight to 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who was also seated at the Lord's feet and was listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do the serving by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. We've all been there. You're prepping for Thanksgiving or Christmas or for your get together and your family and friends are going to flock in any minute and there's lots to do. It takes some finesse to juggle the timing of the main course with all the side dishes. You get one thing wrong and it feels like the entire experience can be ruined and a lot can go wrong. The meat gets dry if there's not enough fat. The veggies go limp if you overcook them. 30 seconds is the difference between a perfectly poached egg and an overcooked one, you know. Sometimes the Kitchen can look like that scene from Mrs. Doubtfire. You know, remember the one with Robin Williams? His cookbook is dirty. And then he goes to add the pinch of basil and then dumps the whole jar out. he's scraping off the burning seasoning. And then all four burners are going all at once. Pots are like boiling over. Then he goes to taste the hollandaise and bursts into flames. We've all been there. (laughs) And if you haven't been there, chances are you're the mooch the others get upset with. At a quick glance, it appears that's what's happening in the story we've read today. You know, Martha is the go-getter, the ambitious one, the practical one, and Mary is the mooch. And that's why Martha gets upset. But there's actually much more happening here. This event with Mary and Martha is actually chronologically misplaced. And with a little digging, we find out why Luke, the author, did that intentionally. Last week, we read the story of Jesus' interaction with the lawyer. The lawyer, wanting to test Jesus, asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus answered his question with a question. What is written in the law? The lawyer replied, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus gave him the thumbs up, good answer. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, asked, and who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story and then answered his question, with a question. Typical Jesus. The story is the well-known, famous parable called the Good Samaritan. The question Jesus asks at the end of the parable is, who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus asks, who was neighborly? Logically, the dialogue plays out like this. Lawyer, who is my neighbor? Equals to, where are the lines? Who can I exclude because of their status? Jesus. Who was the neighbor? There are no lines. You're called to love anybody regardless of their status because of your status. You be the neighbor. What is especially notable about the parable that Jesus told is that it depicts a Samaritan as the good guy in the story. A Samaritan would have been a person from a people group that the lawyer would have considered an enemy, the bad guy. From this story, it's clear that Jesus is not only realigning the focus of the lawyer's devotion to God and others, Jesus is also breaking down dividing walls, like walls of discrimination. Luke is intentional about this, and it's actually a major theme in his book, that those the world considers to be outside, other, out of reach, too far gone, are exactly the people the kingdom of God has been brought to. For some people, Even in the church, that's an upsetting message. And it's an upsetting message then as it is today. Who might you consider to be an enemy? Maybe enemy is too strong a word for you. Okay. Who do you feel like shouldn't be in the room? Or at the least, the same room you're in. At work, at church, on the team, anywhere. Where are your resentments? Jesus says that those people you think don't belong are just as welcomed as you are. Just like the story of the prodigal son, also in Luke. When those people come home, we're throwing a party. You can stay outside if you like, but then you'd just be as lost as they once were. You should come in and join the celebration too. They belong too. This is the context in which we've read our passage today with Mary and Martha. Jesus is all about removing dividing walls. And this is why Luke tells the story of Mary and Martha, though chronologically out of place, directly after the story of the Good Samaritan. The story we read today took place at Bethany. As we know from other accounts of these sisters, Bethany was not far from Jerusalem, near, in fact, the top of the road described in the parable we've just studied. The incident can't, therefore, have taken place at this point in the story. But Luke has placed it here to alert us to something special about Jesus' work. Here's the important ancient cultural context we should understand about this passage. Martha is doing what's expected of anyone who is hosting the Messiah and what happened to be expected role of women during that time. Mary chooses to sit at Jesus' feet. A sign of a disciple in the first century was to sit at the rabbi's feet, a place that was the expected role of men, a place where women were not allowed. But Jesus affirms Mary. There's a dividing wall that Jesus is removing here. Let me read to you a quote from New Testament scholar and historian N.T. Wright. Jesus was redrawing the boundaries between men and women within Israel, blurring lines which had been clearly laid down. The real problem between Martha and Mary wasn't the workload that Martha had in the kitchen. No, the real problem was that Mary was behaving as if she were a man. In that culture, as in many parts of the world to this day, houses were divided into male space and female space, and male and female roles were strictly demarcated as well. Mary had crossed an invisible but very important boundary within the house, and another equally important boundary within the social world. The public room was where the men would meet. The kitchen and other quarters, unseen by outsiders, belonged to the women. Only outside where little children would play and in the married bedroom would male and female mix. For a woman to settle down comfortably among the men was bordering on the scandalous. Mary, Jesus says, has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Recently, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in America, made a movement to bar women pastors. You can imagine the kind of impact that decision would have on churches, on people, all over. Now, we are not Southern Baptist; uh, We are part of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, a Protestant denomination. And we affirm women as pastors and at all levels of leadership. And I'm so glad for it. Women in leadership, you are incredible. You're an incredible gift to our church. I'm so thankful for Pastor Sarah and Pastor Natalie and Pastor Marnita, for Sandy. I'm thankful for Pastors Sandra and Kristen and Megan and Monique and, all, and our worship leaders, people like Jessica and Heidi, and all the other women in leadership that make up our team at Clearview Community Church. What a gift. What a gift. We, along with Jesus, affirm you and your service in leadership. And by God's word, it will not be taken away from you. The women in the Bible are so inspiring to me. You know, it was women who provided financial support for the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. When men couldn't figure it out, it was the same Mary we read about today, the one who sat at the feet of Jesus, who listened to him and anointed Jesus in preparation for his death. The men didn't. At the cross, when just about all of the men were nowhere to be found, it was women who stood by Jesus until the end. When all the male disciples were too afraid to leave their homes after Jesus was crucified, it was women who went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And it was women who were the first to preach the gospel of the resurrection to the other apostles. The first convert in Europe is a title of a section of the book of Acts, and it lists a woman named Lydia. It was women who were sometimes first to help Paul establish churches. And there are names of women listed as deacons, as church leaders, and apostles in the New Testament, all positions of leadership and authority. We just celebrated Father's Day last week, and it it was uh, only a little while ago that I realized, oh wow, okay, this day is actually... For me, too, now, we're going to have a little girl in just about a month. Our daughter's just about to arrive, and I'm learning lots. A question all of us men and women try to answer for ourselves, even if it's not asked out loud, is, who am I? Who am I? Part of the way I can answer that question now is, well, part of who I am is I'm a father now. (laughs) I'm entering a new season of discovery and identity. Part of that question, who am I, includes for all of us, what does it mean to be a real man? Or what does it mean to be a real woman? Now, men, however we choose to answer this question, if the answer doesn't look like Jesus at the end of it, then I would argue that it's not the sort of man we should look to become. Jesus was the manliest man. And this man affirmed women. He was not threatened by them. Men, if you're attempting to become a real godly man, look to Jesus. Jesus has removed the dividing walls that human beings love to put up. It's broken human nature to be tempted and to ask, well, who is my neighbor? Where's the line? So I can try to tiptoe around it and manipulate it so I can exclude the people I secretly or consciously or even unconsciously resent. Jesus says, be the neighbor. Realign your focus, tear down the walls. At every stage, the gospel overturns any idea that entering the kingdom of God pre-requires any kind of privilege or elitism. St. Paul wrote these words as part of a letter to people who were trying to use the Torah, the law, to draw lines and put up walls about who belongs. He says this, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one, In Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The point Paul is making overall in this passage is that God has one family, not two, and that this family consists of all those who believe in Jesus. That this is the family of God that God promised to Abraham, and that nothing in the Torah or law can stand in the way of this unity which is now revealed through the faithfulness of the Messiah. This is not at all about how we relate to one another within this family. It is about the fact, as we often say, that the ground is even at the foot of the cross, and the ground is even at the feet of Jesus. To sit at the feet of the rabbi or teacher meant entering into a maturing process called discipleship. Here is the purpose of discipleship we become disciples or apprentices of the teacher, so that one day we too can become the teacher, we can become the master. Mary entered that process, and anyone who resolves to say, I follow Jesus, enters, enters into this process as well. It's not optional. The beauty of our story today is not only is it powerfully clear that the good news of Jesus casts a wide net to any and all who want to come to Jesus and become disciples, it also gives us a glimpse on how we can grow to become fully devoted disciples. To note, the contrast between Mary and Martha isn't an illustration of devoted and secular living. It's not that Martha's worry and distraction is supposed to represent a person who isn't following Jesus. It's quite the contrary. Everything Martha was doing was for Jesus. (laughs) So let's not be too hard on Martha. People gotta eat. People gotta eat. The reason Mary could enjoy sitting at the feet of Jesus was because someone else was willing to take on the load and responsibilities. What a beautiful gift to give others. But part of Jesus' rebuke to Martha was to call Martha to realign her focus. We're not going to take this away from Mary. It is the better thing. In fact, it is the main thing. It's clear Jesus loves Martha. He says her name twice. In Semitic language, this doubling is meant to convey a magnification of meaning or feeling The other time Jesus does this is when he looks at Jerusalem in Luke 22, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, conveying his deep compassion. Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted. Don't miss what's going on, what this is all about. Don't draw the lines of the shoulds and should nots so that it causes you to miss the main point. And the main point is this, transform disciples of the kingdom, transforming disciples of the kingdom. How are we transformed? How do we mature from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood? How do we mature into a fully devoted follower of Jesus? People who are not worried or distracted, but are at peace in our inner being, helping others come to Jesus, not, not hindering them. How? We sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. Be with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How are we transformed? We behold. Behold. It means to hold, to maintain in place. You could say abide or make your home in. We become most like what we admire most. We are always becoming like we most adore. It's no wonder that our Mary was the only one who understood the mission of Jesus. She was the only one to prepare him for his death when she anointed him. She had been with Jesus. She listened and discerned. She abided. We are always being spiritually formed. Either we are being formed into Christ likeness or we are being deformed out of Christ likeness. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Pete Scazzaro comments on the power of being with Jesus and how we are formed into Christ's likeness. He says, following Jesus is not first doing things for him. It is first listening to him speak and then doing what he says. Did you know that for the first 500 years of the church, this practice of intentional listening was referred to as discretion? And it was considered the most precious spiritual gift or charism one could have. It was understood that without discretion, individuals and faith communities could be easily misguided and ruined. In fact, all abbots of monastic communities were to be distinguished by their wisdom in discretion. Spiritual leaders who lacked discretion were considered dangerous because they unknowingly gave people burdens they could not bear and offered superficial or misguided spiritual counsel. Being with Jesus is the first and most important aspect of growing to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. If you're like me, you hear that and you think, I get it, okay, you're telling me to make time to read my Bible and pray. I'm too busy. How can I possibly do more? I I thought this following Jesus thing was supposed to be light and easy, like Jesus promised. Well, Jesus did say that. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, Jesus isn't a liar. So then why do we feel so exhausted and on edge all the time? Why do we feel like the burden is heavier, not lighter? How are we to understand this verse? The truth is, following Jesus doesn't necessarily make life easier. What Jesus is promising us here is a different way to carry life, one that brings rest to our souls. But it involves the way of Jesus to obtain. And the way of Jesus here is as he said, come to me. The call is not to do more, it's actually to do less. The antidote for exhaustion is not necessarily rest. It's wholeheartedness. The only person who can repair your heart, or as the psalmist said in Psalm 23, restore your soul, is Christ. And the way to do that, as laid out today, is to be with Jesus. Let him lead you to green pastures and still waters. The practices, things like Sabbath, solitude, prayer, fasting, scripture, community, this is the way of Jesus. They are practices and rhythms of our lives that help us reach our main goal, transform disciples of the kingdom, transforming disciples of the kingdom. Don't do more, do less. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Find a community of people who will help you be with Jesus. Find rest for your souls there. Find healing. Find a transforming power that you cannot obtain anywhere else except by sitting with the overflow of perfect love. How you can do that? Well, get some tools. Visit practicingtheway.org. Find a mentor approach somebody who can help you. Or find someone to mentor. It's time to become the teacher. Make a plan and pray and ask the Holy Spirit. Friends, may you go today into a world that tries to put up walls between people, tear them down. May you go today into a world that demands many things, Choose only one. May you overflow with love, joy, and peace as you trust in Jesus, being found in him and being with him today. God bless.